It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions Show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. G'day Kay. Today we're going to be discussing a report called A Comprehensive Methodology for Assessing the Quality of Solar Photovoltaic Systems. This report was done by students from Worcester Polytechnic Institute for the ATA, Alternative Technology Association, as part of their Bachelor of Science degree. The aim of the report was to provide an enhanced assessment methodology for solar PV systems, and it's very timely given the rapid increase of PV systems around Australia. Last year, we interviewed students from WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, where they highlighted the problems with DC isolators and rooftop solar PV systems. And this year, we're delighted to speak to Connor, Daniel and Tess. Hello, guys, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Firstly, well done on this report. It's a very comprehensive one, and you've identified areas of concern that people have when trying to decide on solar PV installations. Thank you. We ended up doing about 14 weeks worth of work on the project. The first seven weeks we were here in Worcester, Massachusetts, researching and creating a proposal for this project. And then we instilled our methodology once we arrived in Australia in the beginning of March. And we followed that through until the beginning of May. Okay. Tell us about WPI and why you decided on this project. So in order to, uh, to graduate at WPI, uh, every student has to do something called the Interactive Qualifying Project. The project is geared to uh, get students outside of their comfort zone. Uh, everyone at the school is a, a science and technology major, so they try to broaden your horizons and you know, have you learn something new. So in order to fulfill this requirement, uh, we were fortunate enough to come down to Australia and get to work on this project with the ATA. Great. And how did you work out that the ATA needed this report? The ATA actually contacted uh, WPI and they realized that there was a need for people to conduct this research and work on this project and they they thought that the WPI students were best for the job. So if listeners haven't worked it out already, this Worcester isn't the one we in Australia immediately think of in England. It's Worcester near um, Boston in America, but the accent should have given that away. That's right. The accent gave that away, didn't it? I only know one Worcester, the Worcester source. So you had four objectives for this report. Can you take us through that, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, we started just researching factors that um, affected, you know, solar photovoltaic system quality mm-hmm. to determine what sort of metrics, both quantifiable and qualitative, uh, were indicative of solar PV system quality. Um, and that helped us kind of develop an understanding of uh, what kind of solar providers use as these metrics to judge the quality of their systems. And then also we reached out to consumers and um, got, gathered their feedback and their experiences with their systems 
um, to gain an understanding of the kinds of failures they are experiencing, as well as um, what they look for when they're purchasing. And that in result aided us in completing our final report that assessed the overall quality of solar photovoltaic systems and um, aided the ATA in designing a comprehensive decision-making matrix. So that was the factors going into PV quality, the metrics for PV quality, um, the consumer priorities, and then the outcome was this evaluation matrix. So how did you get your data for this? So we ended up interviewing uh, multiple representatives within the solar industry, 15 approximately. Uh, these were including uh, manufacturers, suppliers, general consumers as well. We sent out a survey to the ATA's subscribers and we had about 800 to 900 responses, uh, which definitely helped us out in guiding us towards what consumers look for in their PV systems. And we also gathered a lot of information on the failures within their systems. Mm -hmm. So this helped us in recognizing the importance of inverter quality as well as module quality, and uh, we could look into more um, metrics within these systems to see what kind of the main issues were. Tessa, are you saying that it was the consumers that were providing that, eight or 900 consumers that were giving you data on the failures as well? Uh, yes, and these were the ATA subscribers, which was the yep. uh, main source of our uh, survey responses. Right, so rather than the suppliers giving you that information, it was the consumers. Yes, but we did also collect a lot of information through our interviews with the suppliers as well, which definitely helped with collecting data. And with the consumer responses, you found that there was quite a high value judgment on the quality. Uh, the, what were the various um, parameters you put to the consumers? We asked the consumers uh, to rank from in order from one to five uh, what was most important to them. The five categories were quality, warranty, price, installer experience, and customer service. And an overwhelming majority, uh, like 78%, I believe, uh, ranked quality number one. So that showed that the Australian market has a need to um, show consumers what actually goes into quality solar products. Okay. So you didn't actually try and define quality. It was just that they wanted to know that their, their product was of good quality and they were prepared to pay a premium for that. Is that correct? Right. So the majority of our uh, research revolved around after we found out that quality was important, we then determined what made quality systems from materials um, to different testing certifications, um, things of that nature that, you know, when you put, you're trying to find the best combination for the Australian market. So just from my um, playing devil's advocate here from my 40 year old statistics, I noticed that you're surveying the ATA members and they've come back and said quality is important. Did, uh, did you consider whether the rest of the consumers would be the same as the ATA consumers? We did definitely take into consideration that um, the ATA consumers are definitely more aware of solar technology and definitely probably prefer a quality system over you know, paying less. However, quality was so overwhelming um, as the, the most important. We kind of took it assuming that it would also still remain as the most important with the general public. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we chose the ATA subscribers as those consumers to survey was just because of the easy access and the ability to grab a large mm. number of our sample size. Yeah, and an engaged audience presumably too. Yeah. So in a solar installation, a PV installation, what sort of quality factors did people worry about? Um, the, 
the consumers or just in yeah, general? What yeah, kind of consumers. Things? So uh, consumers so worried about the quality of the solar panels or the inverter or the wiring or what is it? Uh, so we noticed the inverter was a large thing that the consumers mentioned a lot um, because that's something that they experience a lot of failures with. Australia oh, okay. has a lot of uh, harsh climates, as, as I'm sure you're aware, mm -hmm. and very hot climates. And so um, the, the inverter failure was actually one of the most surprising things we found. Yeah. Um, actually ran a reliability analysis, um, and we found that about 50% of the inverters fail after 10 years. So mm. uh, that was probably the largest finding that we had about um, what consumers thought and data we gathered from the consumers. Um, but they were also, they had concerns with installation and the warranty as well, because those things do kind of go hand in hand. It was pretty interesting to see that they weren't so much concerned with the, the modules themselves. They seemed to kind of accept the fact that the modules are going to last far, far longer than your inverters are. Um, I mean, outside of, you know, freak accidents where things drop on your panels and stuff like that, they don't really seem to be too concerned with the module themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's get on to the recommendations that you've made. The first one that you mention is recommending that installers are accredited by the Clean Energy Council. Can you tell us a bit more about that, how you reach that? And I actually would have thought that most of the installers would have been accredited here in Australia. It's actually pretty interesting. There are uh, quite a few companies that don't make use of CEC in, uh, accredited installers, mm -hmm. which was really interesting to find when we talked to uh, different professionals and consumers. Um, but we, what we found was a lot of different modes of failure, uh, primarily micro fractures, which are small cracks that establish themselves in the glass of the, so or in the, uh, the solar cell of the module. Uh, those occurred uh, due to poor installation, whether it's being from stepped on or dropping them. So we... Uh, rec we recommended a CEC accredited installer so that you know your stuff is being put in properly without error. So it's not compulsory here that they use? I, I feel a bit embarrassed asking you as American students, but it's um, people don't have to use CEC um, certified installers. No, that's, that's correct. It's not, not mandatory. Hmm. Do you have any idea of what percentage of installers are accredited? I mean, I think that most probably 70 percent of them are accredited but the ones that are not accredited are the the ones that typically cost less so that's why people tend to choose them so it is a small portion of the overall population of installers um, however it is still an issue so this uh, microfactures that was uh, a, a big um, a big aspect of your final report wasn't it uh, tell us more about how they come about um, and the, the degradation they cause Mm -hmm. So, um, so microfractures are just to go over what they are. They're they're small, very small cracks that are undetectable by the naked eye. Um, in the silicon itself. In the solar cell, and what they do is, uh, over time, the crack expands and it grows, and it deteriorates the the solar cell, and then the overall system performance. And so, this can be caused in a lot of ways. Um, it can be caused. During the manufacturing process, it can be caused during the shipping process, and as Connor mentioned, it can be caused in the um, the installation. So, um, as far as the the manufacturing process goes, they actually have ways to detect these failures. So, they make use of uh, electroluminescence testing following their manufacturing, and what they this basically does is um, 
it checks all the panels to make sure that they have no fractures, no blemishes, nothing wrong with them before they, they go into the truck to go to a supply house or, or what have you. Or onto um, a ship. Yeah, yeah, so we're onto a ship, <laughs> uh, which is true in most cases. And so um, this actually stops a lot of the microfracture failures. However, another, another big finding that we found is that um, there are manufacturing regulations, there are installation regulations, but there are no real concrete um, shipping regulations. And so that tends to be where a lot of the microfractures occur because people will uh, you know, stack too many panels in a truck or on a boat or in a, a cargo container, what have you. And so they'll put too much stress on the, the glass, which eventually puts too much stress on the, on the solar cells. Um, and so that'll cause fractures. And then also, you know, just people mishandling it um, while throwing it on the truck or it, it bounces around inside because it's not strapped down properly. And so we found that a lot of, there's a lot of room for error in the, in the shipping portion of the process. That was one of your recommendations, wasn't it, that the ATA work with the CEC to develop guidelines regarding the shipping of these systems. What, yes. what, what can they do? Is it better packaging or some sort of physical protection? Uh, the biggest thing you can do is not stacking the panels so high. Um, it's okay to stack one, two, maybe three panels, but beyond that, the weight of the, the panel tower that you've created puts way too much stress on the glass and uh, that ultimately leads to these microfractures. Wouldn't the frame take that stress up? Because they're all surrounded by the aluminium frames, aren't they? That's what we thought as well. Um, but we actually, um, in talking to different researchers and professionals, um, they actually said that the frame doesn't do as much as you would think it does. Mm. And the weight, the the weight of the panels above actually causes the ones below to start to begin bowing. Um, and once the bowing occurs, any any panels underneath those uh, then have extreme stress on them. This is the BZE Climate Solutions Show, and we're currently talking to Connor Tesson-Daniel from Worcester Polytechnic Institute about solar PV installation assessments. Now, getting on to one of your other recommendations, you also recommended that there are post-installation inspections. Can you tell us how they would be done where the cost would lie, um, who would do it? Uh, yeah, so so we recommended that you have your system ins uh, inspected because we um, a lot of different errors can occur uh, once your system is actually installed, um, whether that be cracking of the glass, delamination of your panels, stuff like that, poor wiring, you know, maybe a squirrel gets in and eats your wires, who knows. A squirrel but, detector, that's going to be tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so we recommended that you have a CEC accredited, accredited installer come out and actually inspect your system. Now, the, the cost would be at the expense of the consumer, um, but in our opinion, it made more sense to pay the installer to inspect your system rather than to miss out on the, uh, the electricity that you would be missing. Are you recommending that the installer who installed the system also do the testing, the checking of the system? It didn't, it didn't really matter. It could either be the installer that installed it or another CEC accredited installer. As long the key the key piece was the CEC accreditation. And how much would do you think that would cost the customer? Honestly, we're we are not quite sure. Yeah, I'm just wondering because hourly rates are fairly high for specialist electrical installers and I could well imagine this would cost at least $500, maybe $1,000. So 
would consumers be prepared to pay that sort of price? I, I think it's, um, it's it's sort of a trade-off. So the way we looked at it is it may be you know five hundred to a thousand dollars. However, if you let these potential errors in your system go undetected, you could have a, a, a problem with the installation and things like that that could fall under warranty. Um, or you know you might not have the best warranty or, or an error that isn't covered under warranty, and so then you'll have to pay to to fix the system. And so to catch it early. I guess while you're still in that warranty period, we thought it was worth that that small investment rather than um, five or ten years down the road when your system ends up failing due to this issue that wasn't caught. Um, you're then out of the warranty period. And you're looking at um, a lot more money than just five hundred to a thousand dollars. So your third recommendation comes back to this um, microfractures thing, or is related to that. You're talking about developing guidelines for the shipping of PV system components. That's the ATA and the CEC to work together as your recommendation. Is that right? Yes. We think that it would be really beneficial uh, just in terms of the process of when it leaves the factory versus installation. Uh, it will basically detect if the main source of the issue comes from the manufacturer itself. If they didn't catch a, or a microfracture before it left the factory, then that's a liability on them. So if uh, CEC and ATA end up creating these guidelines, then it could definitely be beneficial for installers and manufacturers so they could see what the root of the problem would be. Okay. Then the fourth one sounds like a real challenge. You're talking about getting failure rates out of the manufacturers and them releasing that information. Uh, Did you manage to do any of that? What do you think are the real chances of that happening? We actually managed to get... Uh, failure data from one manufacturer. Oh, well done! Um, <laughs> upon request, it, it wasn't. It was not easy. I, I promise you that. Uh, <laughs> who who worked their charm with that one? <laughs> that was Brian. Brian is, is a fairly charming young man. <laughs> um, we were fortunate enough to get access to that manufacturing data, and that's what showed us that it is this extremely useful information that all consumers should have access to and these companies that make recommendations should have access to. However, it's going to take some serious cooperation from these manufacturers to get it done. Did you have any recommendation as to how to do that, (laughs) given how difficult it is? Yeah, so we didn't didn't make it a formal recommendation. However, in our closing conversations with the ATA, we told them that all it took for us to get it from, uh, from the company was to just ask and sit down and have a conversation with what we were going to use the information for. So, that, I mean, we told them that was the best way to go about it, in our opinion. You mentioned earlier about the inverters being a problem after about 10 years. Would that be something that would help determine what the failure rates are for the various components? Or is the the inverter still a problem in, t- in determining its failures and success rate? So we actually got a lot of failure data for the modules, so... Um, we didn't get too much of the inverters, which is actually something we really wanted um, because we did think that, you know, in, inverters were failing at a um, at a higher rate and the, those failure numbers and that reliability data that those manufacturers have would be very helpful in um, determining what the problems are with the inverter, but we, we were not able to look at those. It's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Because given that you're in the other recommendations that you've made, you've covered off on the solar panels, the installation, and the only really big item then is the inverters. And 
I would like to think that there was something that w- would be able to capture that information so that people could uh, pick an inverter with confidence. Yeah, I mean, we ended up doing was we similar to similarly to the modules, we did a material uh, material research, different certifications, stuff like that, and we did develop like a combination that works best for various environments that you'd experience in Australia. But beyond that, it, without having that manufacturer data, it is it is extremely difficult. Yeah. So uh, continuing with the theme of troubles, you looked at a lot of different failure modes for systems and came up, uh, I think, with five primary modes that, that covered the bulk of them here in Australia. Can you take us through those? Yeah, so um, the biggest one that we found was installation error, whether that be, yeah, faulty wiring. Faulty wiring was actually the biggest one. Um, there were actually some of the consumers responded saying that they had they had seen sparks and stuff coming off of their panels, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which is a little scary. Very scary. Uh, if you've seen yeah. photos of when they catch fire, they just don't stop. They, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess that um, was my concern. If you've got the same installer checking his own work or his or her own work, um, that might lead to less information than you might otherwise get. Absolutely, but I, the hope was that the CEC accredited installer wouldn't uh, wire your system so it starts sparking. Oh, okay. Yep. yep. So installation errors number one. What else? What were the others? Following that, it was a tie between micro fractures and inverter failures. Um, and then we actually found that the DC isolator and water damage also caused a lot of issues in Australia. Water so, damage? Yeah, so um, oftentimes this can happen in manufacturing. Um, it can also happen when it's being installed, uh, is that the, the module might not be properly sealed or the inverter is not a weatherproof inverter, but it's left outside. And so you get a rainstorm and you, you end up uh, damaging your module or your inverter and it shorts out because of the water damage that enters the system. There's actually some certifications for inverters. IP65 is one of them, uh, and it actually certifies that the, the sealing is it, it's a proper sealant. Um, it's waterproof. It's debris-proof, so your system doesn't get damaged. Just an aside, IP65 indicates that the module or the inverter is... Uh, water resistant, but IP67 is waterproof. So that was another metric that we found was indicative of quality mm-hmm. because the higher the uh, the certification, then you knew it was uh, it had a lot of higher quality components within it. Mm-hmm. So 65 is more designed to take rain showers and things like that, but um, 67 can actually be submerged. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. And you also discussed the isolator switch that had been identified yeah. previously. Yeah, it's harking back to last year and, and yeah. your, your predecessors. What's the current state of play with that DC isolator switch? Is it it's still causing problems? Is it still an issue? Yeah, I mean, it, it said that it wasn't the highest issue that we found, but it is it is definitely up there. It's only behind the other failure modes by a slight bit, so definitely still a problem. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so getting to the exciting part for me is that comprehensive matrix that you've designed to allow the PV component quality to be assessed. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, the ATA uh, provides consultation to various uh, organizations, whether it be a municipality or a different community organization that wants to install large-scale solar. Previously, they made use of a matrix that wasn't perfect. There were areas for improvement, and uh, we worked to improve that. So we, we created uh, various categories. Those are price, warranty, 
installer experience, customer service, quality, and uh, we added an application-specific uh, tab that allows you to input different environmental and situational factors, and it alters the output of like what system fits your needs best. Okay, thanks for that. We've um, just got a minute or two left, and in that I'd like to cover, or you to cover, the comments you made about the different types of um, PV panels and the relative merits of those and, and the effect that has. Can you cover those? The, the um, monocrystal, the polycrystal, and the uh, thin film? Yeah, sure. Monocrystal and silica, uh, silicon and polycrystal and silicon, they're both silicon-based um, solar cells, and so the difference between them is that monocrystalline is actually wafers that are sliced from silicon ingots, whereas polycrystalline is a, a blend of, um, you know, kind of a, a melted down silicon product. Um, and so the, the monocrystalline silicon is more pure and uh, therefore gives it a, a higher efficiency rating. And so the monocrystalline silicon typically performs the best out of the three solar cell types. But it's more um, expensive. Yes, yes. So, um, but the drawback is that it is the most expensive. Mm -hmm. um, polycrystalline is probably the best value right now. It performs well, and it's it's also very affordable. The third solar module is actually thin film. So this is a non-silicon-based solar module, and so this is the most popular kind of that is the CIGS, the copper indium gallium selenide module. Um, and what we found with these is that they are um, typically the least efficient. Um, however, they're fairly new and they're, they're developing um, at a, a, a larger rate. There's a lot of research and development currently going into those. Um, and what, something that we found that is especially relevant to the climate of Australia is that thin film solar modules actually perform a lot better in uh, heat. Their temperature coefficient performance is a lot, the percentage is a lot lower than that of monocrystalline and polycrystalline. It's about half of that. So this and is where solar, the, the solar, sorry to interrupt you, this is where solar panels performance drops off dramatically as the temperature goes up and you're saying the thin film ones are subject to that deficit much less, is that right? Correct, yeah. Eventually, if you reach a high enough temperature, the thin films will actually perform better than a monocrystalline or polycrystalline model. Um, one of the researchers we talked to, we interviewed, told us that you can actually um, adjust the opacity rating of these thin film modules. So... They are beginning to perform at a higher efficiency, but also the opacity rating is, um, since it's glass, you can make it so that it's almost translucent, so you can begin to see through the glass. So it has a more versatile application where you can use it as a window or things like that nature. That's that's what we've heard of the windows being used as solar panels. It's actually two layers of glass. Within the glass is actually where you find the photovoltaic material So to keep them protected from the elements and such. So it's still a, a rigid structure? Yes. Well, we've just run out of time now. Thanks, Connor, Tess and Daniel for giving us all that information. Thank, Thank you, you for, for your us. report. Yeah, thank, you thanks much. for visiting Australia and helping ATA do their work too. Where can people find out more information about this? Uh, I think if they want more information, they should contact the ATA. Um, they have our, a copy of our report. Okay. Thanks yep. again, guys. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and would like to donate, just go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. 
Thanks for listening and hope to catch you again next week.